everyone and welcome back to our podcast Raya Affairs. It's a new year and therefore we bring you new content from our Raya writers. Before getting into today's discussion, which features a region of the world and leaders that we have not yet focused on in this podcast, I wanted to introduce our hosts for today. So as you may know by now, I'm Marina and I work at Raya as the project development coordinator. I, meanwhile, study international relations and international law. And joining me today from the project development team is Meryl. And as per usual, she will introduce herself and give us the Raya overview. Hi, everyone. So I am Meryl and I will be co-hosting the podcast today. I have just finished my master's in European studies and I'm now an intern at the Dutch Ministry of Education. RIA is an international think tank led by young professionals that translate the abstract world of international affairs by simplifying rather than generalizing. RIA is where you come to learn about the stories and the worries of political leaders, the behind the scenes of decision makers, and how politics impacts and changes your life. This is RIA Affairs, filling you in wherever you are. As our disclaimer, we would like to make make it clear that expressed opinions in this episode are welcome, even though they are not a direct reflection of Raya, as the methodology of our organization is based on unbiased writing and analysis. All right. Thank you, Meryl. So just to give all of you a quick overview of our latest episode, in case you haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, or you need a fresh reminder, last week we published an episode, which I recorded with Raya senior editor and writer Francia Morales in December, while the COP27 was underway. And at the same time, we were discussing the Hydrogen Alliance, signed by German leader Scholz and Canadian leader Trudeau. A few key insights from this episode. Well, first of all, the, this bilateral alliance further uh, aligns with the EU long-term goals to diversify energy supply. Secondly, both leaders have domestic interests that relate back to either decreasing Russia's position as an energy supplier amid the current war. So, you know, Trudeau really seeks to establish increased cooperation and security through energy strategy, while Schultz seeks an alternative source to fuel Germany's energy crisis. And thirdly, for now, it's a win-win situation for both of our leaders. And if there are to be any negative ramifications, Francia said they will only be evident in the future as per her analysis. So similar to our previous episode, we will be discussing the bonds between two countries today, specifically their presidents. Resources have always been an important driver to direct political decision-making. And as we have seen in the alliance between Trudeau and Scholz, they have created the hydrogen alliance that is beneficial for both countries. But not always do countries want to share their resources. Actually, in today's episode, we will look into the difficulties countries have over the decisions who can have the water resource on the border. We will be moving to the Central Asian region to analyze what the impact of the Soviet Union's old borders have today, how the countries create new alliances, and what border conflict is about. So with that in mind, let's welcome our Raya writer, Roxanne. She will be joining us to discuss the feud between Tajikistan's President Ramon and Kyrgyzstan's President Japarov. Hey Roxanne, and welcome to Raya Affairs. We would love for our listeners to get to know you a bit. So could you tell us where are you from, what you do, and perhaps how you got to the role you have today at Raya? 
Hey everyone, thank you for having me today. So a little bit about myself, I'm half French and half Turkish and I'm currently a fourth year student of business administration and international relations in Madrid. When it comes to Raya, I studied interning in their research and analysis branch last summer. Then in September, I became a full-time writer. And finally, at the beginning of this month, I started a new position as a junior editor. Thank you, Roxanne, for the introduction. And of course, as we know, our Raya members are passionate about international relations. And our first question relates to this. So we would like to know what leader, either dead or alive, who had an impact on the world, would you want to have a conversation with if you could? I think I would love to meet and have a conversation with New Zealand's uh, former Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern. I'm very interested in hearing what she would have to say as she became a Prime Minister at a rather young age. And she has had to deal with historic issues such as a deadly volcanic eruption, the country's worst ever attack and the COVID-19 pandemic. Also, as a woman who became a world leader, I think she's very inspiring and I would love to hear some of the behind of the scenes explanation of how she resolved some of the problems that her country faced. Thank you, Roxanne. And what a great choice. Very quickly, just to speak for myself, I think Jacinda Arden is a great source of inspiration, especially in the manner in which she handled her resignation. A lot of the times politicians will continue to stay in a position even though they don't have the energy, um, the motivations right for it. And I know that happens in my country. And so I think she's a great example of a politician who is in the position for right reasons, leading her country um, when she still can, while she still can, right? But we are going now back into our topic of discussion. We are going to get into the article that you wrote, analyzing these two leaders, the dispute at hand, and their individual interests in just a second. And we normally don't do this, but I think for this episode in particular, we need to give context. It's very normal that our audience and even ourselves will be unfamiliar with this part of the world, just because it's not brought to our attention by the media, and frankly, even in our studies. So while Meryl and I were beyond interested in reading your work, we were also curious to understand more about these two countries, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. And so with some of the research we did, we want to give our listeners quick facts and a visual map so that they can get into this conversation with us. Right, first of all, most important, the countries to, that we are discussing today are both Central Asian states located in between China, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, and Kazakhstan. So these are their regional neighbors. Tajikistan, of which the leader is Rahmon, is located north to Afghanistan, and so it shares a border with Uzbekistan, Afghanistan, and China. While Kyrgyzstan, whose leader is Japarov, shares the same borders except for Afghanistan. So instead of Afghanistan, they share borders with Kazakhstan. And both of the countries, Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, share a common border of around 917 kilometers. This is where it gets interesting, which is the second fact that we want to bring to our audience's attention. The countries are both ex-Soviet Union countries, so they had their borders demarcated in the 1920s during Joseph Stalin's rule. Yet, once the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, the conflict regarding 
border delineation began. And as of today, that process is still incomplete, with around 400 kilometers of their shore border still disputed. So that's over one third of that, that border length. The idea here is that when it comes to the practicalities of the border demarcation back in the 1920s, it's no longer viable, seeing as the maps differ for each of the nation. But I don't want to spoil any longer, and I really hope that this information was useful. To finish off this context, Roxanne, can you add anything regarding this historic border dispute? What have both countries claimed at the border over the years and why? So first of all, I think it's important to note that during centuries, there were no borders drawn between the countries in Central Asia. And this was because the citizens were nomads. So they traveled uh, between seasonal pastures at different altitudes for grazing at different times of the year. But as you mentioned, with the formation of the Soviet Union, the Soviet regime forced the sedentarization of rural Kyrgyz and Tajik population. And Moscow established administrative borders in Central Asia in the mid-20s, and these didn't follow neither natural geographic boundaries nor strict ethnic rules. And to complicate things further, the borders were redrawn on several occasions. And as you just mentioned, when the nations in Central Asia became independent in 1991, there were some tensions. Indeed, if you look at the case of Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and Kyrgyzstan, they all have historical claims to each other's territory and economic interest in the transport routes, rivers, reservoirs, and industries. These historical ties have caused a lot of tensions, especially when it comes to who has control over water bodies in the disputed regions. Consequently, there has been several air resource access and use clashes between the Kyrgyz and Tajik border communities. In fact, in the last 10 years, there have been approximately 150 incidents recorded. Thank you, Rixan, for giving us this overview. I think we now all know the history and that we can move on to our questions. So when focusing on the particular dispute of your article, could you tell us what happened between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan in September of 2022? Of course, as I just mentioned, there is this historical tension between the two countries. However, on the 14th of September 2022, there was an exchange of fire between the Kyrgyz and Tajik border guards. Both President Rahman and President Japarov accused the other of being the first one to open fire. Uh, the Tajik government reported that two border guards had been killed in the incident and 11 people, including five civilians, were injured. On the other hand, Kyrgyzstan said that at least two of its servicemen and two civilians were wounded. However, this conflict was not the first one that happened in 2022. Indeed, there had been several flares up uh, that year, including in January, March, and June. And this despite the ceasefire agreement signed by both countries on the 27th of January, 2022. And as a follow-up, Roxanne, would it be possible to give us a brief timeline of the agreements that have been signed between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan regarding the demilitarization of the border? Because as you just mentioned, there was a ceasefire agreement, and maybe you could tell us a little bit more about this. So yes, as I just mentioned, despite the ceasefire agreement, there were some flare-ups at the borders. And one of the most important took place on the 14th of September. However, on the 16th of September 2022, 
both Rahman and Japarov had agreed to a second ceasefire during the Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting, and after what seemed to be a de-escalation, the hostilities continued a day later on the 17th of September. However, on the 25th of September, both governments came to a demilitarization agreement of the borderland. However, despite the ceasefire, relations between both Rahman and Japarov have continued to heat up after Rahman's security forces released a statement which accused Kyrgyzstan of violating Tajik airspace with drones. Thank you for giving us this overview, Roxanne. I think now our listeners will totally be up to date. So let's get into the individual decision makers of today. As we know, the current president of Kyrgyzstan is Sadir Yaparov, and the president of Tajikistan is Emomali Ramon. In your article, you have analyzed the current tensions between these presidents and how they are trying to achieve their domestic interests. Specifically, for President Ramon, there are two political incentives for him to win this border dispute. What are they and what role do they play in Ramon's political goals? So that's exact. The first reason is that President Rahman wants to expand his territory and this desire stems from current international political circumstances. So he has been mentoring his son, Rustman Emomali, to take his place when he's ready to step down from the presidency. He wants this transition of power to be as smooth as possible and to do that he needs to demonstrate both power and stability. By winning this war, he would achieve that. A second reason is that Rahman is looking to distract the attention of the Tajik away from the protests in the eastern Tajik region of Gorbonod-Badashkant Autonomous Oblast. Right, and as a follow-up, could you go into detail about these domestic protests in the Gorbonod Autonomous region? So this second reason for Rahman. Who do they concern? How has Rahman responded? And why is it so significant for Rahman to respond in this way? I think that in order to comprehend the roots of the protest in the region, it's key to understand its history. So this region accounts for around 45% of Tajikistan territory, yet only about 220,000 of Tajikistan's 9 million people live there. The inhabitants of the region are Pirmiri, which is a minority that has its own language and they're mostly Shiite Muslim, while the rest of Tajikistan is mostly Sunni Muslim. So as you can see, there are already some religious and historical conflicts. After Tajikistan gained its independence in 1991, there was this nationalist group in the region called Lali Badashkan, which also sought a greater autonomy from the government. And this caused a civil war to break out one year later in 1992. Although the region never became fully independent, the Tajik government has never managed to gain full control over the region. Which brings us to 2021, and more specifically November of 2021, when there was a local activist in the region that was killed by the Tajik security services. Since then, Tajik citizens have been protesting in the region, and that despite the violent repression from the government. In fact, there is a report which was published around two weeks ago on the 12th of January, 
with, uh, published by Human Rights Watch, which explained that at least 40 civilians have been killed as a result of the violence, uh, the violence perpetrated against the protesters. And so this includes uh, violent clashes with security forces. And in addition, more than 200 people have also been detained in this protest. So why is it important for Rahman? It's important for him to keep control because this is a large region and there are many concerns of possible separatist movements. Another reason that has been mentioned a lot is that by gaining full control of the region, the Tajik administration will have full control of the illicit trade along the country's section of the Pamir Highway, which is a long road of around 1,200 kilometers that runs through Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and Kyrgyzstan. Thanks, Roxanne. It is so interesting to know all these particularities about Ramon and the country. But now I would also like to know more about President Yaparov of Kyrgyzstan. What is his main concern surrounding the conflict? Yaparov wants to ensure that none of the borders uh, are lost to Tajikistan, and this is because these regions have a high strategic importance. These regions possess water, which is a high demand resource, and the cause of many conflicts in the past. The waters of the Isfara River irrigates around 43,000 hectares of land in Kyrgyzstan. And seeing that Kyrgyzstan is highly dependent on agriculture, it accounts for around 20% of its GDP, we can see why he wants to keep this resource in his country as its key source of Kyrgyz income. And this is especially the case now with global warming and rising temperature, as he will continue to need this resource. For example, in 2021, there was a drought which resulted in a 40% loss of rain-fed crop production. Uh, for Japarov, Kyrgyzstan's water vulnerability is not diminishing, so controlling the resource is a must. He does not want Tajikistan to gain control over it. It's very interesting, Roxanne, because now we begin to see some differences regarding each of the leaders' motivations for their participation in this border conflict. I am wondering, though, whether the water distribution and water vulnerability is the sole motivation for Japarov to engage in this dispute. Are there other personal political interests, like we have seen with Rahman? Of course, water is a huge factor why he wants to keep these regions. But you're right, there is also a certain political interest for Japarov. It's important to know that in 2021, he ran on a nationalist platform. And so losing this key territory to his neighbors will affect possibly his political career. And it will make him lose credibility amongst his voters. Great. Thank you for clarifying, Roxanne. As you mentioned in your article, Japarov seeks to reduce dependence with another country, Russia. Could you go into what reducing Russian dependence and instead seeking out other allies such as China means in the context of regional politics? When a Japarov ran on a nationalist campaign, he also promised his uh, electors that he would reduce Kyrgyzstan's dependence on Russia. And this is a big change, as all of these countries in Central Asia have been extremely dependent on Russia in the past. 
it's important to highlight that the presence of Russia in Central Asia is older than the solidification of the Soviet Union. We can already see that during the 19th century, the Russian Empire and the British Empire fought over control of the region. So it's safe to say that Russian influence runs deep in Central Asia in terms of history, but also culture. Today, Russian is still the lingua franca in the region. But today, in a globalized world, uh, countries in Central Asia and especially Kyrgyzstan are looking to step out of Russia's shadow and to broaden their horizon. They are seeking other partners, such as China, as you just mentioned, and they see it as something that is essential for the development of their economies. So what it means for the context of the region, it means that there's going to be more players. A perfect example would be when Japarov made a deal with China and Uzbekistan to build a new railway connecting both China to Europe through Kyrgyzstan and bypassing Russia. Again, the aim of this is to make the country more independent uh, from Russia. And this is a phenomenon that you can see in other countries in Central Asia. For example, when it comes to the military, countries such as Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan seek to expand cooperation with other countries such as Turkey. As you mentioned, many countries have been involved in the history of Kyrgyzstan. And do you think it will be safe to assume that escalation or de-escalation is in Japarov's best interest? And why would that be? I believe that a de-escalation is in his best interest. He has invested a lot in this railroad. Um, it was part of his nationalist platform and he took a risk by angry Putin because the railroad is bypassing Russia, as I just mentioned. And therefore, it's in his interest for the conflict not to escalate if he wants the construction of this railway to reach an end. And as it's very close to the border in the Tajik border in Uzbekistan, he really wants the conflict not to escalate. All right, so for now, I would like to pause this conversation with China and Russia and both of our leaders at hand because we will continue talking about this in our last segment of the episode called Connecting the Dots in just a second. But to wrap up this main question segment, I would like to ask you, Roxanne, how has each leader portrayed the other regarding this border dispute, right? None of the leaders would admit that their armed forces began shooting at the other, nor are they blatantly stating these affiliations that they're creating with other countries. Like in most things, politics, right? Actions will have an indirect and subtle message that might reveal the strategy or way of thinking of that leader. So in other words, what actions have you analyzed, Roxanne, that frame each of the sides of this conflict, let's say? You're right. So both sides frame the conflict differently. As I said before, right at the beginning, on the 14th of September, both leaders accused the other side of firing first. And we can see that this continued throughout the month of September. On the 20th of September, Japarov gave a speech in front of the UN's uh, General Assembly regarding the current border situation. During his speech, he mentioned that the objective of the UN's charters and its intention to maintain international peace. He also outlined Kyrgyzstan's history of being a regional peacemaker, as well as how his country managed to resolve most of its border issue with its 
other neighbors, such as Kazakhstan and China in 1999, and also how they signed a year prior a border agreement with Uzbekistan. By saying this, we can see that he framed Tajikistan as the one being the cause of the conflict, since Kyrgyzstan has managed to resolve its border conflict with other neighbors. On the other hand, you have Tajikistan, which sided more with a Putin. So Putin awarded Rahman in October of 2022 with a Russian order for merit of the fatherland. This is an award that was given for Rahman strengthening the partnership between Russia and Tajikistan. And it was described as being a medal for ensuring regional stability and security. Of course, this was not taken well by the Kyrgyz population, which saw it as Moscow playing favorites. Thank you for elaborating, Ruxin. It's very interesting to see both sides. So I think this is definitely a great segue for the end of our discussion, seeing as we have just covered framing, which is important to consider in political analysis. So what do you as a writer believe are the three top takeaways our listeners should have in the process of research and analysis? So first of all, as we've mentioned many times, there was a huge problem regarding the water bodies in the disputed regions. So what I did during the research analysis process is that I looked at scientific reports analyzing the importance of the bodies of water for both of the countries and for its agricultural sectors. Um, when it came to researching the conflict in September of 2022, I read statements given by both uh, governments. I tried to analyze the language to see how they evolved as well as the wording and their positioning. And I looked at both statements from the government so that I wasn't biased. And uh, lastly, I looked at what happened in both countries internally as well as externally in the past a few years and what uh, motivated them. So for example, uh, Rahman and the protests in the region and why it was so important for him to have a stable country because of course, if there are some uh, protests in the country, it's not the best time for his son to take a position of power. And also last semester, I had a course on Central Asia and its politics, and that helped me a lot. So, for example, in that course, we talked about how uh, Tajikistan was the country that felt uh, that it lost the most when the Soviet Union drew the borders. So that can explain why they are more aggressive and why they want to regain territory that they feel has been taken away from them. So you all heard it here, our top three takeaways from Roxanne, and I'm very glad you had this course because it meant great preparation for this episode, as well as your own research, obviously. So as mentioned before, we will now continue with our podcast segment, Connecting the Dots. So we started this part of the podcast when we had our summer interns, um, in which we connected the leader or leaders of the episode topic with a wider international relations topic. So this ranges from anything to, to development, human rights, foreign policy, security, and many others. So the goal of this part is really to show how interconnected global politics is, regardless of the leaders that we are discussing. 
So Roxanne, in your article, you have mentioned the new allies Yaparov has been trying to create for himself. As we know, both countries were part of the Soviet Union, and after it had fallen, both countries maintained good ties with Russia. However, as you said previously, Japarov has been less close to Russia, even to the extent that he did not attend the Russian Commonwealth of Independent States meeting. On the other side, we have China, who is trying to get closer to Kyrgyzstan, even building a railway directly between China and Kyrgyzstan, and making a statement that they want to ensure Kyrgyzstan's sovereignty. In this analysis of each of the leaders' approaches, China's role of filling up a power vacuum in light of the current relationship between Russia and Kyrgyzstan is a hot topic. Can we hence connect the dots between the rise of China in the region and what it has that Russia, for instance, cannot offer right now? And based on this, do you have any insights on how Russia should threat in its dispute? You're absolutely right when you're saying that Russia can't offer something right now to the countries in Central Asia. Normally and historically, Russia has been involved in issues in Central Asia through the Collective Security Treaty Organization. However, as of late, it has been too distracted with Ukraine to really intervene in the region. For example, in the past, Russia has sent troops through the Collective Security Treaty Organization to the Caucasus when there were conflicts between both Armenia and Azerbaijan. Japarov explained that when the conflict sparked back in September, Russia did not intervene as they were taking care of so many problems of their own. This has created a real power vacuum in the region, which China has been trying to fill. Indeed, on the 15th of September, so to put things back into context, only one day after the conflict sparked at the border, Japarov met with China's President Xi Jinping. China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs explained that this meeting only reinforced the fact that both that China uh, supports Kyrgyzstan in defending its national independence, but also its sovereignty and security. It was also emphasized that given the current events, they would strengthen their partnership by increasing mutual support. As we can see here, Russia can't really intervene, so China is making a move. I've talked a lot about what has happened in September and the different actors such as China and Russia, but now I want to talk more about what is the situation like today. On the 14th of January, both President Rahman and Japarov congratulated each other on the occasion of the 30th anniversary of the establishment of diplomatic relations between both of their countries. During this conversation, they talked and discussed about their prospects and their cooperation between both countries. And while this is very hopeful, there are still some tensions remaining between both countries. Indeed, merely days after this conversation, uh, Kyrgyzstan has bought a fresh batch of Turkish-made military drones. And a, the press secretary of Kyrgyzstan wrote a Facebook post on January 17th explaining that this acquisition of drones was directly linked 
to the recent history of border conflicts with Tajikistan. So as we can see, even today, if there is, even if there is no real conflict, we can see that there are still tensions remaining between both countries. And I also wanted to highlight that there hasn't been a real winner on either side yet. If I may add then to conclude, Roxanne, both countries today seem to be at a stalemate. There's no clear winner. Today we began this conversation with Roxanne on Raya Affairs to discuss the historic border clashes between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan and the motivations of their respective leaders, Rahmon and Japarov, depending on their personal political aspirations and their country's resource needs. I would like to highlight some key summarizing points. First of all, both Rahmon and Japarov want to gain control over the regions at the disputed border due to their strategic importance, with access to water as key, especially with the threat of global warming. Rahmon, on one hand, wants to take attention away from the protests in the autonomous region and have a win before handing power to his son. There are also political stakes, on the other hand, for Japarov as a loss and territory would affect his credibility among his voters and electoral support after running on a nationalist platform. When looking beyond the two countries and towards regional and international alliances, Kyrgyzstan wants to gain more independence from Moscow and is looking for other allies such as China through the railway project that we mentioned and other co cooperation strategies that can bring economic development. Tajikistan, meanwhile, has been Russia's favorite, in a way, after Rahmon was awarded a Merit uh, to the Fatherland award by Putin. Once again, we have seen with Roxanne the impact and importance of natural resource on politics, territory and principles of sovereignty on politics. But it's our job now to keep an eye out for developments and see what's in store for these leaders. What will they do next? Would it be possible to respect the ceasefire agreements and conclude border negotiations? I guess that's food for thought. So thank you, Roxanne, for joining us today and for providing us with much-needed analysis into this topic. It has been a very insightful episode that has taught us all about the conflict between Ramon and Japarov in a region of the world that we had not yet discussed on our episodes. Having Roxanne on Raya Affairs has been a pleasure, and we hope to have her back soon. So, thanks Roxanne for joining us today. Thank you for having me and for listening to me. So, for those of you who have enjoyed our discussion and you want to read Roxanne's article for yourself, click on the link in the episode description or find her research on rayagroup.org. Also, make sure to follow us on Instagram, raya.now. It has been a pleasure hosting this discussion today together with Marina. So goodbye to everyone and thank you for tuning in. Have a great day in your sphere of influence.